Today at Reader's Corner, Morvan Lalouette, co-author of Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. I'm Bob Custard. Welcome to a special edition of Reader's Corner, where we have joined freedom seekers around the world in mourning the death of Alexei Navalny, the Russian martyr who gave his life for his country. Poisoned in August 2020 and transported to Germany for treatment, the politician returned to Russia in January 2021 in the full glare of the world media. Navalny has been proclaimed dead at the age of 47 at a prison in the Arctic Circle, where he was serving a three-decade sentence. In the book Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future, authors Ben Noble, Morvan Lalouette, along with co-author Jan Mati Dolbaum, give shape to this divisive character, examining the contradictions of a man who was the second most important political figure in Russia, even when behind bars. As Noble and Lalouette say, in order to understand modern Russia, you need to understand the legacy of Alexei Navalny. Morvan Lalouette is a PhD candidate in comparative politics at the University of Kent. We spoke to Morvan Lalouette in March of 2022. And we revisit that interview today on the program. Marvin Lalouette, welcome to Reader's Corner. Uh, thank you very much, Bob, for uh, inviting me to your program. Why don't we begin by your giving us just a thumbnail sketch of who is Navalny? Where did he come from? Please share with us who this man is. It's, it's quite difficult to sum up who Alexei Navalny is in a few words. He, he, was, he is Russian, of course, your listeners will know that. He was born in 1976, uh, so he was young uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart. He, he studied law and finance, had a short-lived business career, and then entered politics. And across uh, almost 20 years in politics, he became uh, the most influential leader of the Russian opposition to Vladimir Putin's regime. And he did this, uh, and this is to introduce uh, already the, to the structure of the book by, by being three different things at the same time an anti-corruption activist, uh, a politician in the traditional meaning of that term, and a protester. And if you could, uh, let's talk a little bit about how the world came to know Navalny. I think it's fair to say that while Navalny might have been known to Russia experts over the years, uh, the poisoning of Navalny by Putin's men really put him on the front page across the globe. And I don't think there's anybody who at least reads the news wouldn't know what happened to him, how he almost died. He survived in a German hospital. Uh, then he chose to return to Russia. And I guess that's where I'm going with this question. Uh, back in the day when his predecessor dissidents of old Soviet system rebelled in one way or another, they often left the country, figuring they could do more good alive outside of Russia than imprisoned within it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn comes to mind as a guy who did just that. Uh, Navalny knew he was going to be arrested the minute he set foot in Russia. He did it anyway. Um, is there any way that the Russian people today can hear from Navalny? Uh, the last I think we heard from him is the day he was sentenced when he spoke out against the invasion. But he's in, in a sense, I guess the word is taking himself out of circulation, it seems to me. Uh, maybe you can comment on that. 
Well, uh, I think your question is kind of twofold. I think the, the first question, and I think it's a question that is on, on the mind of many people, is why did he choose to, to return to Russia, knowing, as you said, that there was probably 99.9% chances that he would be sent to jail. And uh, I think that, that uh, we could look at uh, what he has said, and, and uh, that is that he didn't leave, leave uh, Russia on his own. He was sent to Germany for, for treatment, as you said. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's the first point. The second point, uh, perhaps more deeply, of course, is that um, Navalny, by coming back to Russia, would show the true face of the authoritarian regime in Russia. Because uh, before he was poisoned, he was allowed in some measures, of course, uh, coming across many difficulties, but he was allowed to, to um, have a political activity in Russia itself. And I think that by coming back after his poisoning, first he sets a, a, an inspiring example of heroism and is something that is he has tried to do along his whole career to show that people shouldn't be afraid. And on the other hand, he would show the true face of the regime, that is that he is dangerous and that to silence him, uh, Putin has to put him in jail. Uh, so I think that this is um, the main answer to that question. Now, of course, uh, since Navalny is in jail, uh, his ability to communicate with the Russian people has been drastically reduced. And uh, so he's been able to communicate through his lawyers who post uh, his message on, on various social media platforms. Uh, some people have, might have uh, heard him when he was... Um, testifying at his own trial that is taking place uh, right now as we speak. But of course, uh, his ability to communicate uh, with the Russian people has been reduced. And I think that this has been a serious blow to his movement because um, however talented uh, might the people around Navalny be, uh, there, there, there has been never a doubt that he is uh, the most charismatic figure in, in today's opposition to, to Vladimir Putin in Russia. You know, you mentioned Navalny's access to the people of Russia. And um, one of the things that I found very interesting about your book was the fact that Navalny did have access to the people of Russia on the Russian internet, for example. And of course, I don't know, I, th I think I'm like many of our listeners we tend to think of China and Russia in the same authoritarian and autocratic terms. We tend to think that they're repressive regimes and that people really don't get the information they need. And yet at one point in your book, you point out that Navalny's blog, which of course was the opposition's point of view, was one of the most popular on the Russian internet. And my first reaction was he got into the Russian internet. Uh, there's an accomplishment that I don't think you're going to get in uh, China. I wonder if you could comment on just how much flexibility he had in those years. And is that changing now? Because it sure looks like uh, Putin is doing everything he can to crack down on those protesters in the streets and online. So when, when Navalny uh, started his career as an anti-corruption activist, he used this blog. So this, this is... This is something that took place in the mid-2000s, end of the 2000s. And this is the moment when Navalny started acquiring a kind of national profile among the opposition in Russia. And at the time, uh, the Russian internet was incredibly unregulated and uh, 
uh, on the one hand, on, on blog platforms like, like Journal, which was a very important uh, uh, platform for public debates in Russia, but also uh, there was a very lively um, internet press at the time, and also a traditional press. That, uh, and across the years, we've, we've seen, along the years, we've seen how these, these spaces have been shrinking and shrinking, and it's clearly Russia today is not in, in the situation of the uh, Chinese internet, but uh, this is possibly the direction that the country is 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 moving to, and um, so we have seen this when uh, Navalny and his team was trying to promote strategic voting uh, strategy that uh, was delivered through an app that uh, Russian authorities asked um, Google and Apple to take down this app from uh, from their online stores, and uh, we're seeing that. Um, the repression of uh, comments made on the internet is intensifying in, in the last uh, years. And we can expect this repression to intensify in the next years, especially in the war context. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Although I did, I did hear one commentator in the initial uh, days of the, of the invasion uh, mentioned that people were getting some in, information uh, from the Russian internet about the invasion. Uh, and I thought that in itself was interesting that uh, somebody was getting through to the people. Uh, by the way, while we're on the, the people, let me uh, go to a quote of yours and your co-authors in the, in the book. At one point, um, you say that in late 2020, 49% of Russians believing Nav- Navalny's poisoning was made up or carried out by Western secret services. Now, we in America are way familiar <laughs> with uh, the truth getting bogged down and not getting through to the people and people just refusing to believe the truth. But um, I thought 49% was really a high number. Obviously, that's because, and you can comment on this, Russian TV is a tool of the regime, so they're not going to tell the real story, I suspect. Uh, But it's somewhat depressing for those of us who want to believe that somehow the truth will find its way to the Russian populace. And I mean the truth about the invasion, the truth about the war crimes that are being committed by, by Putin. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, I agree with you that it is depressing. And uh, I think it, it, it reflects uh, what I was uh, saying a few minutes before, that, that uh, these, the, the, the television in, in Russia is under total control from the authorities and even before the dramatic events that we've uh, seen in the last few months and, and, and years, Navalny couldn't appear on, on national television in Russia. And on the other hand, it also reflects that this internet is getting uh, less free and less free uh, as we speak. And uh, why you could see that in the, the, the end of the year 2000s, beginning of the 2010s, you had many, many uh, uh, popular news websites. Uh, one of them was called Lenta, for example, which was the biggest website in Russia at the time. And these independent outlets really uh, had been either taken into control or closed altogether. And so it's getting more and more difficult to, to access in today's Russia uh, free information. We've been listening to an interview from March of 2022 with Morvan Lalouette about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died on February 16th, 2024, in a Russian penal colony. So you and your co-authors 
quote, two social scientists who say that power in Russia is co-constructed. Share, mm-hmm. share with us what that means and how it gives us a clue of how protests on the streets of Russia today do cause concern for Putin and his oligarchs. Well, there's many ways to, to interpret what uh, these two social, social scientists have, have been saying with this uh, short sentence. And uh, I think that one of the most obvious way to interpret this is to say that uh, Putin's uh, rule has been based upon the consent of the Russian population. And it has been based upon delivering a certain number of goods to the population in terms of rising living standards, in terms of... Uh, uh, stability in terms of decline of crime, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it has been based on uh, the, the general population agreeing to these objectives and supporting Putin. And I think that we, uh, all three co-authors, agree that that uh, there is an element of genuine popularity to. Uh, Vladimir uh, Putin's rule. And uh, to get back to Navalny, I think that one of the most important points in his strategy, something that he acknowledged um, by the end of the year 2000s, is that Putin is generally popular and that if you want to, to, to destabilize, to change the situation in, in Russia, you need to attack this popularity. And this is where Navalny's investigations on corruption. This is where um, his attempts to publicize his findings on blogs uh, mostly and then on YouTube come in. Uh, you need to convince Russians that... Putin is a corrupt leader and that he is not bringing prosperity and rule of law and any any good to Russia. And this is what Navalny has done over a, a 20 years career almost now. And that has made possibly set him aside from, from other liberal uh, opponents who were quick to dismiss uh, uh, Putin's rule as only the result of repression and only the result of an unfree media environment, for example. Now, of course, uh, we're seeing, uh, as we speak, dramatic uh, uh, events in, in, in Ukraine, and it's very difficult to judge at this stage whether or not the war that, that is happening in Ukraine will have an effect and what effect it will have on this on this. Uh, uh, support for Putin that remains genuine at this stage. As a matter of fact, I, I noticed in your in your book, uh, you get to the point where you're examining the relationship between Navalny and Russia's protesters. And to your point about what do, what are we going to learn from what's going on right now in Russia? We can go back to an earlier time when a protester was pulled from the crowd of over twenty thousand Russians who at the time, I think, were showing up to protest Navalny's arrest. That was like early 2011. And someone quoted him, and he and this protester said, I'm no fan of Navalny's, but I'm a fan of the rule of law. And I, I guess I wonder if you could help us understand what appears to be a very complicated relationship with Navalny uh, and the Russians. And, and right now, when some of us are concerned that Navalny uh, has been silenced. And as you say, he can be talking through his lawyers, but that's not like having him out on the streets, so to speak. Maybe it's a good thing to know that the protest movement is more than Navalny. And I think that's what you and your co-authors were trying to tell us. 
Please comment. Uh, so what we're trying to do is kind of counter this narrative that uh, Navalny is a cultish uh leader that has created a tight and and uh, cult-like uh, support in his movements and uh, working with uh, one of our, our co-authors research we we try to argue that um, actually this is not the case of course you will find people in russia who have genuine admiration genuine sympathy for for navalny's views and navalny's personality but you also find people who just happen to rally behind Navalny because they just think that he is the best around in the opposition and that he is, uh, as we say at some point in the book, an alternative to, to Putin's rule, to the authoritarian regime, but an alternative without alternative. And this is something that, that uh, Navalny has managed to do, and it, he has managed to establish himself as one of the leaders of the Russian opposition, maybe some not somebody who is actually consensual in the sense that everybody would support him, but someone who is without a doubt or was without a doubt the most Uh, efficient in mobilizing people around consensual teams, whether that was the fight against corruption or falsification in elections. And um, of course, there is much more uh, to the Russian protest movement than Navalny himself. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about Igor Zukov, who is a more youthful protest leader. Uh, you address his work in the book. And I think one of your points is that his tactics may be different. Uh, Navalny seems to be more strategic and conservative than Zukov. And I, I guess I have to ask, does anybody know where Zukov is today? I mean, like this week uh, during this invasion, is he, is he picking up the baton that, uh, that Navalny can't carry on the streets? Do we know that? Um, I don't know where uh, Zhukov is, uh, so so I, I won't be able to answer that question. But uh, what you mentioned, I think it's an interesting point that also shows how Russia has been evolving over time, which is something that we try to insist a lot upon on, on in this book, is that um, at some point, and Navalny was, was very conscious that uh, he shouldn't call for protest action to go outside of uh, what he made of the Russian constitution. That is, he would not advocate violence. He would, of course, break the law that concerns um, unauthorized rallies because this law is is, is completely flouted in, in, in the Russian context, but he would not call people to burn police cars or to storm the Kremlin. And uh, this is something that, that was controversial at one point. I don't know if it's still uh, quite salient today because the other uh, uh, evolution that we, we point to in our book is that the landscape for protesters has been changing dramatically uh, over the last 10 years and uh, what we have seen when when Navalny returned from Russia in January 2021 and what we're seeing now when uh, Russians are trying to protest against the current war in Ukraine is that it's getting much much more difficult to protest and uh, while even five or ten years ago uh, the authorities would allow some demonstrations. Now it's extremely rare that they would allow some demonstrations and people will be arrested at demonstrations and possibly sentenced to uh, very long terms of prison. 
We've been listening to an interview from March of 2022 with Morvan Lalouette about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died on February 16th, 2024, in a Russian penal colony. And it wasn't always that way. You you mentioned Dayton's Law, which I guess uh, really was the crackdown years ago, two decades ago, let's say. The Kremlin didn't seem to care much about these protests, did they? Well, uh, the Russian people did enjoy some freedom of uh, assembly, uh, as I think you say in the U.S. Yeah. And I think that this this is something that uh, has changed over time, that has probably changed um, the most after the 2011 and 2012 wave of protests against Putin's returning to the presidency of Russia, against uh, the falsification in the legislative elections that took place in 2011. And in these years, you saw massive uh, demonstrations uh, in in many Russian cities. And uh, you also saw uh, in the aftermath of this protest movement, um, Navalny trying to use uh, protests as uh, one of his most important strategy to pressure the Russian authorities. And over time, uh, the Russian state stepped up as, as repressive measures. And the Dadin law was one of the, the turning points in the strategy. It's basically a three strikes and you're out law that says that if you violate three times the legislation on rallies and on demonstrations, which is something that is quite easy to happen if you attend a couple of demonstrations, then you can be sentenced to real uh, prison terms. And uh, this has had the effect of, of course, uh, frightening many people into demonstrating. And for example, one of uh, Navalny's coordinators in in, um, Siberia, when Navalny returned to Russia in January 2021, she went to two demonstrations. Uh, she, so she was arrested and violated two times this law on, on demonstrations in Russia. And when a third demonstration was called, she had to announce on social media that she wouldn't go to the demonstration as much as she wanted to, because there was very, very high chances that she could then be sentenced to a real prison term. So this is, of course, something that is uh, dampening the uh, protest potential in Russia even today. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned uh, his coordinator in Siberia because uh, another thing that I really never really thought about or understood was the fact that Navalny is not just a protester in Russia proper or in Moscow. Uh, Navalny has some kind of a statewide organization. Maybe you could comment on just how he has put this together, but I mean, they're there isn't much of the larger Russia that hasn't seen something of Navalny's uh, organization, as I understand it. Is that correct? Um, well, this is, I think, something that has distinguished uh, many Russian liberal politicians from Navalny. And what makes Navalny quite distinctive is that um, he, of course, he comes from Moscow. He lived in Moscow. Uh, now, of course, he lives in prison. But uh, he was never uh, happy with just gathering a few thousand protesters in Moscow and uh, in St. Petersburg, which is the second most important city in Russia. And um, you can see that he always had the ambition to uh, uh, spread his anti-corruption message. Uh, so, of course, on blog and on the internet, but to spread that message uh, to the whole Russian population. And uh, he wouldn't uh, say adopt a, a 
disparaging attitude to to uh, other Russians outside of big cities or outside of the capital. And uh, when in, in 2016, he started uh, considering running in the 2018 presidential elections, he started to travel a lot across the country, organizing uh, rallies and opening offices, which were called in Russian headquarters, uh, to show possibly their, their militant potential in in. Um, in many, many Russian cities. And uh, in, in, in doing so, he adopted a quite of a, a business-like approach with um, his uh, number two at the time, Leonid Volkov, who uh, adopted yeah, a quite business-like attitude, uh, posting ads on the internet that they were willing to recruit coordinators for these offices across the country, uh, looking at resumes and, and, and trying to to find uh, organizers that would be able to promote Navalny's message and at the time promote uh, Navalny's uh, candidacy in the presidential uh, elections, which of course didn't happen in the end. But mm-hmm. uh, this is something that has made uh, Navalny uh, reach these levels of popularity outside of Moscow. And also, if I can stress this, outside of the internet, because there's always, uh, when you read... Uh, profiles of Navalny uh, in in the West and in Russia also this insistence uh, which is uh, completely warranted that Navalny is a politician of the internet age but uh, what we try to show in the book is that Navalny is not only a politician of the internet age, he's also a traditional politician that will uh, knock on doors uh, organize rallies, travel across the country and try to build a constituency and this is something that I think that uh, that made Navalny quite interesting as a a political figure. And you mentioned Volkov. I guess in American terms, we'd call Volkov his campaign manager, Uh, but he's clearly the the chief strategist for Navalny. And uh, I just wonder, do we have any idea what he would be doing like today in Russia? Uh, Is he taking over this organization? Is he in communication with these various folks? Is it likely that he's at least one of the reasons why we're seeing thousands upon thousands of protesters showing up uh, and uh, expressing their dismay of the Putin regime? Leonid Volkov is currently residing in in Lithuania, as far as I know, and he has been quite uh, active in in, uh, promoting the Navalny's organization, the Foundation Against Corruption message in Russia. The foundation is continuing its day-to-day business. It's, of course, investigating corruption in Russia. It is releasing uh, videos publicizing this corruption. Uh, They're also hosting... uh, um, live streams on YouTube and on other platforms. And uh, yesterday evening, they released a video, short video, about three, four minutes, that was calling uh, Russians to, of course, condemn the war that is happening today and calling for civil disobedience in Russia at the moment. Now, um, this so this video was released uh, yesterday evening, and uh, it's, it's difficult, I think, at the moment to assess whether or not uh, their action is having an impact on protesters uh, since from what we can understand, and I will not, not um, elaborate too much on this, but uh, it seems that many of these protests are, are really spontaneous and are not really organized by any uh, political force in Russia, even though, of course, some liberal parties are calling people to, to demonstrate and uh, to oppose the war in Russia. So the question toward the end of your book uh 
is the million dollar one. Is Putin <laughs> afraid of Alexei Navalny? Share with us your answer. Um, we believe that, yes, in a sense, he is afraid of Alexei Navalny. And, um, uh, of course, it's not by looking at the psychology of Vladimir Putin. We're not in, in Vladimir Putin's head. And uh, uh, if I may add, it's, it's more and more complicated to know what is happening, not even in Vladimir Putin's head, of course, but around Vladimir Putin, the Kremlin, the sources to, to know what is happening there are, are quite limited. But um, what makes us say that Vladimir Putin possibly was afraid of Alexei Navalny is that um, you can see that the Kremlin is reacting to his tactics. And you can see that, for example, in uh, 2013, uh, when a election for the, the mayor of Moscow was organized, the Kremlin was willing to uh, let Alexei Navalny participate in that elections because they hoped that he would be uh, routed, that he would get a few percents because he was just a simple blogger that appealed only to Moscow hipsters. In the end, Alexei Navalny uh, receives officially about 27% of the vote and he is never allowed to participate in an election at all. You can also see, for example, that at some point there was some kind of liberalization of uh, party registration in Russia. So many parties were, were allowed to registrate themselves as parties and participate in elections. Navalny's party tried to register, I think, more than 12 times, maybe 12, 14 times, and was never allowed to participate, uh, to, to become a proper party and to uh, set a party list to, to participate in elections. So I think that if you look at a couple of examples like this, you, sh you see that uh, Navalny, contrary to other, uh, other political groups, was actively repressed and was prevented from participating in, in proper politics, which must show that the regime had concerns that it might uh, score some victories. Well, let's wrap this up, Morvan, with a, a thought about who Navalny's supporters really are. And this becomes critical for those of us watching intently, hoping and praying for some kind, I won't call it a revolt, that sounds ridiculous when you're talking about the Putin regime today anyway, who knows what the future holds. But uh, we really hope that there's a broad base of support from Russians that are willing to get out onto the streets that are willing to demonstrate. And um, in your book, you talk about who these people are, uh, that it's not just a rich kids movement, as you say at one point. Please expand on that. Well, um, in this book, we used some research that um, one of the co-authors, Jan Batidobel, made uh, on Navalny's movement. And his research tends to, to, to show that... Um, Actually, it's not as the cliche would have it, and as you said, a rich kids movement, that uh, it's also, of course, you, you can see that the movement seems younger, but this is, this is not high school students as uh, propaganda in Russia would have it. Now, of course, I think for, for, for uh, reasons that are explainable and, and quite rational, you will see the demonstrations and the support for Navalny 
mostly in, in, in bigger cities. But uh, it, it was interesting to see that when Navalny in 2017 and, and other occasions called for demonstrations, you saw demonstrations and, and people willing to protest in, in much more, in much smaller cities and, and places than would be expected. And of course, what is, is probably the most, uh, uh, the most important factors on, on whether you would be willing to support either Navalny or, or someone broadly uh, uh, like-minded, say, is whether or not you, you would get your information from the internet or from state-controlled television. Uh, and this, of course, gives a glimmer of hope that, that uh, more people will, will have access to that kind of information and that also as a new generation emerges in Russia, people will be more sympathetic to this kind of message. But on the other hand, of course, as uh, we're seeing the, the freedoms of the internet being drastically reduced in uh, Russia and repression being being propped up quite dramatically, it's uh, uh, it also leaves room for, for quite a measure of pessimism well, Morvin, I can't thank you enough for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Uh, I want to remind our listeners again that the name of the book is Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future, published by Oxford University Press. The authors, Jan Matty Dolbaum, Morvin Lalouette, and Ben Noble. Morvin, thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Well, thank you very much. We've been listening to an interview from March of 2022 with Morvin Lalouette, about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died on February 16, 2024, in a Russian penal colony. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.